0: On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is Satan's Puppets. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. I'm back. Sorry for the long absence. My mother passed away in April and I've been languishing in a weird place. I decided though that I missed doing Crime Biscuit, so I jumped back in and I went in headfirst. I could have done something light, but I opted instead for dark, awful, and evil. To be honest, this started out as research about a single killer and evolved into a triad of questionable characters. And the one I thought I'd be focusing on kind of became a bit player. These puppets are Carl, Robin, and Andy, and they are a terrible threesome to say the least. I got a lot of facts from a multi-part article on all things interesting called Line and Strings, written by Kelly. Also from excerpts from Henry Scamell's book, Mortal Remains. Let me set the scene for you. Fall River, Massachusetts has an industrial feel huge stone warehouses that almost seem to be modeled after English prisons. Some of them take up almost a city block. In the late 1970s, these stone buildings stand empty in the heart of the city. In Henry Scamell's words, quote, the energy of Fall River had moved elsewhere. And there are some other things happening at the same time, and not just in Fall River. In the 80s and early 90s, there existed a mindset that was called Satanic Panic. A lot of towns, mostly smaller towns, harbored a secret fear that devil worshippers were hiding out in the woods, sacrificing animals, and even people. But that's just the stuff of movies or even urban legends, right? Well, maybe not. With satanic panic in the back of our minds, let's go to October 13th, 1979. The body of Doreen Levesque is found by joggers under the bleachers at the local vocational school. Doreen was from nearby New Bedford. She was a sex worker who was often working on Bedford Street. Doreen and her parents had some issues. She had a habit of causing or getting into trouble at school and at home. She was 17 after all, and unfortunately she never got the chance to grow up some and make some changes in her life or choose a new path for herself. Doreen had been bludgeoned to death and had also been stabbed in the back of the head. All of her clothes, except her shirt, were gone, and while the scene had some kind of sexual feel to it, there was no evidence of sexual assault. She'd been tied around the wrist and ankles with fishing line and twine. There were blood-stained rocks around the area where her body was found. This is what initially caused investigators to start thinking along the lines of a ritualistic killing. A medical examiner was of the opinion that more than one person was involved in Dorian's death. The indication was, quote, the evidence pointed to the possibility of torture and death by stoning. I'm going to stop for just a second and let you, listeners, know. That this story is going to seem, at least the way I'm presenting it to you, like it is all over the place. We're going to jump forward, we're going to jump back, we're going to switch people. If you bear with me, I promise in the end, or at least I hope, it will all make sense. So Doreen was found in October. Jump forward to January twenty-six of 1980 and the badly decomposed body of a young woman is found. The body is found by a man walking his dogs in a wooded area behind the R.E. Smith factory. Like Doreen, this woman is bound at the wrists, which are above her head. She has been beaten beyond recognition. The weapon, or weapons, used appear to be concrete chunks that litter the ground around her. There are tiny pieces of concrete found in her hair and in the wounds on her face. The victim is identified as 20-year-old Barbara Raposa, also a known sex worker. Now we have two women both beaten, both bound, and undressed below the waist, and both appear to have been beaten to death with stones, one with concrete. Sounds connected, right? Here's the thing. The public at large pretty much assumes the two are absolutely connected. But the police feel otherwise. Turns out they are mostly right. So why, you might ask, am I bringing this murder up? It's because this case has a confusing amount of people that are in the same orbit, and all the lines intersect. And one of them in particular seems to connect more than others, and it isn't who you might think. More on that in a bit. Let's meet 42 year old Andy Malte. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, and I don't particularly care because he is a real piece of you know what. He has some casual connections to the people at Bedford Street which is the main drag, if you will, for prostitutes, bars, johns, and pimps. I'm sure others as well. Andy is a convicted sex offender. He messed around with a couple of 15-year-old girls and ended up in prison. He was, at the time, the ex-boyfriend of Barbara Raposa, who, like I said earlier, was 20 at the time of her death. So let's do some math. Barbara had a four-year-old son who Andy claimed was his, though that's never been confirmed. But let's just say the boy is his. That means Barbara was, say, 15 or 16 when she gave birth, and Andy would have been 38 or so. Apparently, serving time for molesting children hadn't taught him a lesson. It's also implied that he was molesting a girl named Robin Murphy starting when she was eleven. We are going to learn a whole lot more about robin murphy in a few minutes anyways i think we can all agree that andy is a creep of the highest magnitude here's the first of the connections to the prostitutes and pimps on bedford street his ex barbara was a prostitute on bedford street and he was reportedly molesting robin murphy who is now meaning at the time of barbara's murder 17 and also a prostitute let's take that imaginary string and connect it from Robin Murphy to Carl Drew, who was her pimp, and a whole lot more, as you'll soon see. Let me talk a little bit more about Andy. When police are questioning him about Barbara Raposa's death, he says, quote, used to be with Satan, now I'm with God. Andy also claimed to be clairvoyant and told Detective Sylvia that he, Andy, would use his gift to help solve the case. Andy also has kind of a off-the-books, unofficial informant role that he plays for Corporal Paul Fitzgerald of the Massachusetts State Police. And Fitzgerald is working on the Doreen Levesque case. Andy brings Robin Murphy and Karen Marsden in to see Fitzgerald in regards to Doreen's case. So we've circled back once more. So let's talk about Robin Murphy and Karen Marsden and their conversation with Fitzgerald. Robin doesn't say anything useful at all. Lots of I don't know's, etc. Karen, however, tells Corporal Fitzgerald that Carl Drew is the one responsible for Doreen's death. Beyond that statement, though, she won't say more. Fitzgerald can't do a whole lot with just the accusation that Drew is responsible. Police usually need a little thing called evidence to move forward. If you haven't seen it yet, Robin Murphy is the connecting thread. Stay with me here. Barbara Raposa's body was found on February 9th, 1980. Robin tells detectives that she was there when Barbara was killed. And here is her story. Robin called Andy for a ride at 1 a.m. On that phone call, Andy tells Robin that Barbara called right before her and wants to be picked up at Sambo's Diner on Pleasant Street. Coincidentally, Robin is at the Mahogany Cafe on Pleasant and Flint Street. Andy picks up Robin first, and according to her, while they are heading to Sambo's, Andy says, I am going to kill Barbara for going out with that Cohen. I have no idea who the hell Cohen is, but that's what he said. When they get to Sambo's, Andy tells Robin to get in the back seat so Barbara can get up front. She does as she's told, and Barbara gets in. And then apparently, the shit hits the fan. When Barbara sees Robin, she is not happy. She does not like Robin being in the car. The two women start arguing. Barbara punches Robin in the face. Robin grabs Barbara around the neck and by her hair and pulls her into the back seat. These two are going at it, and Robin bites Barb on the breast at some point. Andy makes a sharp left. The women hit the right rear door. And not too long after that, Andy stops the car. Andy gets out, pulls Barbara off of Robin, and he restrains Barbara outside of the vehicle. Robin can hear the two talking, and it appears to her that Barbara is calming down. Then Andy goes to the trunk and retrieves a bag in which he keeps sex toys, or so Robin says. Andy and Barbara go off into the distance. Barb gets undressed from the waist down, and Andy gets on top of her. A little later, Robin hears the two arguing. She says Andy is hitting Barbara with his fist. At this point, Robin turns away but looks back when she hears a scream. She can see Andy sitting on top of Barbara with a rock in his hands. He brings the rock down in the general area of where she assumes Barbara's head would be. Andy grabs his bag of toys and says as he walks away, let's see you crawl home from here. He puts the bag into the trunk and drives Robin to her mother's house. At the end of this tale to police, they take Robin to the location where Barbara's body had been found. Robin points out the exact spot where it happened, and she's right, of course. Robin gets police protection at a local hotel, but she is allowed to come and go as she pleases. Andy, in the meantime, uses his clairvoyance to tell police that he saw what happened to Barbara. Of course, it's a Portuguese man doing the killing, And Andy doesn't know why this guy is killing Barbara. And supposedly in the vision, Barbara is asking for Andy to forgive her. Of what? Who knows? This little bout of ESP is weirdly accurate. I wonder why. Um, maybe because he killed Barbara? Between Andy's vision and Robin's testimony, Andy will eventually get convicted in 1981. But we need to spend more time in 1980. Robin has already told police about seeing the murder of Barbara. In April of 1980, Robin tells police and the DA that she was also there when Doreen was murdered. And here's her account of that. Robin is riding around with Carl Drew and another man. At the time, Doreen was working the streets, but not for anyone, meaning she had no pimp a freelancer. Drew offers Doreen a joint and invites her to join him and Robin and this other guy. Once Doreen is in the car, Drew basically demands she start working for him. Doreen says no. At some point, Drew reaches back and slaps Doreen. He then heads for the south end of Fall River and as he's driving, he keeps telling Doreen to work for him. She keeps saying no. Drew ends up driving to the high school And over to the grass near the bleachers. Drew and the other guy drag Doreen out of the car and take her underneath the bleachers. Robin says she can't see what's going on because it's dark. That could be true. She also claims she doesn't hear any screams or any sounds of a struggle. Now let's think about this. When Barbara was killed by Andy, she could hear them arguing from way over there after they had sex. And she also says she heard Andy say, let's see you crawl home from here as he's walking back from killing Barbara. Yet in this case, Doreen is being beaten to death, supposedly by two men. And she doesn't hear screams or sounds of any kind of struggle. You know what I say to that? I say bullshit. But hey, that's just me. So for whatever reason, I'm assuming Robin leaves with these two men when they come back from under the bleachers without Doreen. Now, Let us dig into the life of Robin Murphy. 17-year-old Robin wasn't initially super helpful to police. Remember when Andy fingered Robin and Karen as people to talk to? So this did not make Robin happy. When Fitzgerald questions Robin and Karen, only Karen talks. In Henry Scamell's book, he says Robin wasn't fond of snitches, and on one particular occasion, when a friend of hers was talking to police, Robin yelled, quote, What are you telling the cops? You shut your fucking mouth or I'll break your jaw. Nice way to talk to a friend, right? But it gives us a good idea of Robin's mindset. Robin is already a known person to Detective Sylvia. He knows her from the time he spent at another girl's apartment. I don't know her real name, so we're going to call her Ann. Ann lives in a housing project called, at the time, Harbor Terrace. Ann's place is a popular hangout for a rather rough crowd. These are the same sex workers, Johns and Pimps, from Bedford Street. On the same street as Harbor Terrace is the main police headquarters, and they are well aware of the crime and activity happening in this area. Anne herself is also a sex worker, and she isn't the kind of girl you mess with. According to Detective Sylvia, he had seen Anne fighting with another girl, and that fight ended with Anne holding the girl by the hair as Anne smashed the girl's face into the cement. So we now know Anne is a fighter. She also plays hostess for a certain regular event. Tupperware parties, maybe? Nope. Satanic rituals and devil worship. During the warmer months, the group liked to meet in the Freetown Fall River State Forest. In the forest, they would supposedly gather at an altar, sacrifice animals, and speak in tongues to try and invoke Satan's power. But in the colder months, they met at Anne's. Anne had a giant mural of Satan painted on one wall of her apartment. According to detectives who had seen this mural before, they kind of felt it wasn't there so much to express her belief in Satan as it was that she liked the fact that her place was the main hangout for the Bedford Street regulars. Scamell says in his book that the mural of Satan was like a tribal banner. This was in the beginning though. Later when they, meaning the detectives, find out about the satanic meetings, they have to reconsider their initial feelings. Probably like they reconsidered the devil tattoo on Carl Drew. And you might be asking how the police even found out about the meetings. They found out from Karen Marsden. It is at one of these parties that Karen tells detective Sylvia about the satanic rituals. The police are at Anne's looking for information on what happened to Doreen. This is obviously before Robin tells them the details. Once a satanic angle is thrown in, that spices things up. This is a city heavily saturated with Catholics, so worshipping Satan isn't something you'd want to openly talk about. Maybe especially not to the police. But Anne, who hosts some of these rituals, isn't afraid to admit what she's up to. She actually invites the cops to attend a meeting, which they do. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Right now, I want to talk about Karen Marsden. She is a 20-year-old from Fall River. She has a son who is at the time living in a foster home. Karen hangs out with a tough crowd, but she isn't like a lot of the people she hangs out with. She's got a drug problem and turns to occasional prostitution to support that. She also doesn't seem too keen on the whole Satan thing. She will mention her belief in God and her desire to be a good person. This is evidenced by the fact that she knows she can't be the kind of mom her son needs, so she makes sure that he is taken care of. Even though he's in a foster home, she sees him frequently and remains a mother to him. Karen herself lives with her grandmother, whom she is very close to and with whom she checks in with every day. This love of family is why she is afraid of angering a certain man named Carl Drew. A little on Carl, he is a pimp, which I kind of already told you, and he likes to hang out in Fall River bars, namely Charlie's and Pier 14. These bars are located on Bedford Street, which, as you know, is the hub of the prostitution. Drew was at one time a member of a biker club called the Sidewinders, He was not a stellar member by any means or a standout of any kind. And he eventually gets kicked out because of all the pimping he is up to. But we're going to go back to Karen now. We are still in the time frame around Doreen's murder. So Karen is having regular talks with the police. She's scared and nervous about this. Karen is convinced that Carl Drew is going to kill her. Maybe even hurt her son or grandmother, which Carl has threatened to do. At some of these meetings where Karen is sharing this stuff with the police, her good friend Robin Murphy is also present. Robin, however, isn't sharing info herself and does not seem very happy that Karen is. This is when police find out that a lot of the meetings, i.e. satanic rituals, take place out at the Freetown Fall River State Park, also known as the Res, to people in the area. What might take place at these events, according to the talk, is some chanting to get Satan's attention, just like at Anne's Place, but with some added activities like sacrificing animals and then pouring the blood over their heads. It is at one such meeting at the rez that Robin warns Karen that if she tells police anything, she'll end up dead and her body will be left out in the woods. By all accounts, Karen really wanted to help the police, but at the same time, she's terrified. Of Carl Drew, certainly, but I have to wonder if she wasn't also afraid of her supposed friend, Robin. Karen appears to really believe that Drew has some kind of tie to the satanic and even though her family is religious, she's also the kind of person that would be pretty easy to suck into the occult atmosphere. Karen believes Satan is real and whether Drew himself believes the crap he's spewing, who knows. What is for sure is that Karen's fear is real and it is that fear that keeps her from giving the police the kind of info they need or that they can use in court against Drew. But Karen does tell police something very chilling. On multiple occasions, she says if anything happens to her, they should focus on Carl Drew. Robin Murphy, who is 17, remember, is in a relationship with Anne, the one with the apartment that the meetings are held in. The two end up breaking up and Robin moves in with Karen. Karen. Sometimes Robin and Karen are talked about like they were lovers, other times like they were just best friends. But either way, Robin wore the pants in that relationship. 20-year-old Karen appeared to be, if not afraid, at a minimum intimidated by Robin. Here's a look into that relationship. Detective Sylvia and another detective talked to Karen and Lynn. They convinced them to talk about anything they might know in regards to Doreen's murder. The Fall River PD don't know that Karen already has talked to the state police and told them that Carl Drew killed Doreen. Karen says that Robin relayed a threat from Drew, and I'm betting it's from Robin as well, and the threat was made to keep Karen from talking to the police. This is the gist of what Karen told the police. Robin and Lynn come by and pick up Karen. Robin takes them out to the res and goes down a long dirt road. They come to a secluded lane, and in among the trees is a sort of shack and a table of stone or wood. Robin calls it the altar and then tells Karen and Lynn that Drew wants them to know he is going to kill both of them and offer their souls to Satan. According to Robin, Drew is going to inject battery acid into them and leave their bodies in the water along the road. Remember when I called bullshit to Robin saying she didn't hear or see Doreen murdered? Well, I'm thinking she played a bigger role and Karen, being her roommate, knew more and probably Lynn too. Otherwise, why include her in the threat to Karen? I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that these threats are coming from Robin. Maybe Drew too, but at this point, Robin has been at two murders. One committed by Andy and one, though as yet unsolved, by Drew. Food for thought. Now we come to it. The murder of Karen Marsden. This account comes from Robin, so bear that in mind. Robin convinces Karen to get into a car. And in that car are Carl Drew, a guy we'll call John, Lynn, and of course Robin. They drive down a string of dirt roads in the town of Westport. Robin and Drew are telling Karen that Satan is about to get what he's owed because Karen talked to the police. They're in the woods now, and Drew supposedly orders Robin to beat Karen, which she does. And then using a chokehold, Robin drags Karen into the woods. Drew removes most of Karen's clothes and then orders Robin, Lynn, and John to stone Karen. Using a hunting knife, Drew cuts between Karen's fingers all the way through her hand to the wrist joint and severs her hand from her arm. Robin is told to perform some kind of sex act on Karen, but Drew stops it pretty quick. Drew then commands Robin to cut Karen's throat, which she does. Drew, at this point, is behind Karen, and using a combination chokehold slash bear hug, while wielding his hunting knife, he decapitates Karen. Drew takes Karen's head and kicks it around the place for a while. Lynn and John go back to the car while Robin and Drew remain with the body. Drew cuts an X into Karen's torso and then starts chanting in some strange language. This is his moment of offering Karen's soul to Satan, or at least the theatrical version of it. Then he draws an X on Robin's forehead in Karen's blood and tells her, Now you are one of us. They drive back towards Fall River, and on the way, Drew stops, gets Karen's head out of the trunk where he'd put it, and tosses it into the woods. What's next, you ask? Part two, I answer. There is so much to cover when talking about the trials and what Robin says, and then a more recent declaration from Carl Drew. So hang tight for the final crumb. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at CrimeBiscuit or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crump. As a general rule, it's not a good idea to hang out in places where Satan's image is considered good decor. Maybe meet up at the local coffee shop instead. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.